Welcome to a very special combined episode of Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens. I'm Watchman Staff Apologist Daniel Ray. So glad you could join us today. This week, you are in for a wonderful surprise. In celebration of the 4th of July and in celebration of 2022 being the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 moon landing, we are featuring five episodes with a very special guest, retired Air Force Brigadier General and Apollo 16 moonwalking astronaut, Charlie Duke. Charlie is the youngest of all the 12 moonwalking astronauts and the 10th man to set foot on the lunar surface. In April of 1972, with his fellow astronaut and good friend, the late John Young, who passed away in 2018, Duke landed high atop the Descartes Highlands in the lunar lander Orion. This was the highest elevation moon landing of all the Apollo missions. Charlie shares with us everything from what it was like being Capcom of Houston for Apollo 11, what riding a Saturn V rocket felt like, the stark, surreal beauty of the lunar surface, and how the Lord Jesus Christ transformed him and his entire family. Here on part one, Charlie shares what it's like looking back over the 50 years since his historic trip to the moon, and what it was like in the final moments before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's historic landing of Apollo 11. Well, thank you, sir, for taking time this morning. I appreciate it. Uh, I just got through reading your book that you and Dottie wrote. Oh, good. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. I did very much. My dad um, was the reason I got, I was interested in, in space and astronomy. And my dad knew somebody at NASA. Um, my, his parents lived in Florida. And so he was able to uh, get a tour uh, just before Apollo 13 left. And uh, so my house was filled with uh, NASA stuff and Apollo stuff. And this framed portrait right here was something my dad had made of uh, Neil coming down the ladder. And uh, so uh, so thank you, sir, so much for, for doing this. Uh, you've been all over the world since your 50th. Congratulations on 50 years. Uh, looking back, what, how, how, how does it feel 50 years uh, having that wonderful achievement 50 years in the past, how, how has your faith enriched your experience? Well, it's uh, 50 years a long time, and uh, it's hard <laughs> to believe it's been 50 years since uh, uh, John and I landed on the moon. But uh, the facts are it's been 50 years. But uh, sometimes it seems like so long ago it's hard to, hard to remember. But then I start thinking about it and all the adventure and all of the wonder and all of the awe. Uh, of being on the moon comes back. And so uh, it's still a vivid experience. Uh, a lot of people still interested in Apollo. And mm -hmm. so uh, we get to travel all over, all over the world, actually uh, uh, speaking and uh, sharing our experiences, not only our uh, Apollo experiences, but our, a lot of times our faith too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I remember you came up to North Texas uh, a few years ago. Uh, you spoke at a men's breakfast uh, at a church, and I was able to attend. And it was a wonderful uh, talk to hear you and to see you share your experiences. Um, and one thing that touched me, and I just wanted to share this with you, and just, just to be an encouragement about how your ministry has been an encouragement to me. I, I just recently found out, I found out about your faith uh, watching the Ron Howard film. Uh, several years ago, uh, in the shadow of the moon, I think you remember the, where he got a lot of you guys together and you guys told your story. And that's where I was so appreciative of your testimony. You just said how you gave your life to Jesus when you were, uh, when you came back from the moon. Um, but when you were in Texas a couple of years ago, and I, I had asked you a question about uh, what it was like to be Capcom for Buzz and Neil's historic landing. And as you were speaking, sir, I remember I starting to hear the Lord's voice through what you were saying, because as I'll have you describe what that was like, I heard emergency and landing and craters and boulders and all kinds of danger and things. And I, as a Christian, I'm an adult convert myself, and I've always struggled with, you know, my assurance of, of salvation. But the, the morning that you spoke, as you were talking about your experience with Apollo 11, I heard God's voice saying, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. So it, it was remarkable, a wonderful thing just to hear you tell that story. But my faith was enriched and encouraged by what you shared as well. So why don't we just dig right in? Uh, because you were Capcom. And I understand from reading your book, Neil asked you to be a part of Apollo 11. Is that correct? Uh, I was uh, Capcom on Apollo 10. Uh, the first time we took the lunar module to the moon and it was sort of a dress rehearsal for, uh, uh, for Apollo 11. So, uh, the team, the mission control team that would do it, do that phase of the, of Apollo 10 would do the landing phase on Apollo 11. Well, the Capcom usually moves with the crew. And uh, I wasn't on the support crew for Apollo 11 or uh, anything like that. So uh, I was uh, I was surprised when uh, Neil asked me to do it. But but it made sense because the, it, it, he wanted to keep that team together that had done OK uh, during Apollo 10. So he wanted to keep the team together. And so I started assisting them and helping a little bit with checklists and stuff like that. We only had two months to get ready. Oh, wow. And uh, from Apollo 10 was May, I think, of, uh, of um, uh, 1969. And so now we're going to launch in July. Mm. So he asked me to be Capcom, and that kept the, the team together. And we we used to doing similar things that we did on Apollo uh, 10. So it worked out really well. I was really pleased that he asked me to do that, uh, and uh, quite an honor, actually. Yeah, I read that in your book, how excited you were about uh, having Neil ask you. Uh, you think you're in the astronaut corps, and, and you, there's a lot of competition in the astronaut corps, but uh, you were really touched by um, Neil's, uh, Neil's asking you. Uh, I love the moon. I love Apollo. It's been a part of my life, uh, all my life, so it's, it's fantastic to get to talk to you, sir, again. Um, but let's talk about briefly... Um, sitting in Mission Control, I've been there. I've been to the to the to the uh, uh, Houston Space Center there. Um, and one thing I discovered when I was there a couple summers ago, uh, I didn't know this, but you were the only one 
Uh, well, I learned it eventually, but you were the only one. Capcom was the only one that actually got to talk to the astronauts, even though everybody had a microphone. Um, you were the only one that got to talk to them. But everybody in the room could hear what Neil and Buzz was saying because there was only one little green, as I understand it, one little green speaker or something through which they came. So it wasn't like everybody had them in their headset. You'd heard them through a speaker, but you were the only one that could talk to them. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. I, everybody could listen. You had to punch a button on your console to get the, to get the, uh, uh, the, what the crew was saying into your headset. Uh, and, uh, everybody, basically everybody in the room was listening to that because they were, they wanted to understand when he had a problem, uh, an alarm or something, those things came up. They wanted to hear what the crew was saying. Uh, but the only one that was allowed to respond was the Capcom. Uh, and uh, so uh, that kept uh, a, um, a continuity, if you will, a, uh, a discipline uh, into, uh, into that uh, air ground loop uh, communication. And the rest of the stuff went through mission control. I mean, the flight director. You could hear as Capcom, you could listen to that loop, but you were also listening to the uh, the crew, uh, and uh, <clears throat> and if they asked a question, you would respond. Of course, you didn't have to answer the question, but you'd say stand by or whatever, and then the, the appropriate flight director, uh, flight controller, would give give a response that I would then repeat, put in you know, pilot language and stuff and make sure they understood uh, mm -hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I understand when you were at MIT um, that you were in charge or you, you helped to create the guidance systems for Apollo. Is that right? I, I was, uh, I did a thesis on that. I wasn't, I wasn't responsible for any of the development or the okay. design or any of that. Once they built this thing, uh, this guidance system uh, at MIT, the, to interface uh, this system with the crew, uh, the crew had a task of uh, pointing the telescope uh, in the environment, in, in that system to a star, mark on the star, and, and do that three times, and that would triangulate you and give you a reference point for your inertial measurement unit. And uh, they, they wanted a, a, a pilot with a pilot experience. Can you really do this? The spacecraft may be drifting through space, and uh, there comes a star, and can you track it with your little hand controllers? And so it was really a... a a statistical analysis of could the crew actually do this at, at uh, certain rates and of rotation and stuff like that. Mm. And so it was, uh, that was all we did was take data. Uh, my, I had a, uh, there were two of us on this, uh, doing this thesis, Mike Jones and myself. And it was, uh, and so there were two names on that. When we got through, it was both of us got credit. Uh, for this uh, thesis. And, um, and so we proved that uh, you could do it. Uh, we were very weak in uh, uh, statistical analysis, uh, <laughs> but uh, the instrumentation lab gave us a little help. 
uh, from a uh, PhD in statistics. And uh, so we proved that you could actually, the crew could actually operate the system as designed. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and so they were very pleased with that. Uh, the results came out really well. And uh, uh, it turned out that uh, throughout all of Apollo, the crew had no, well, Jack's, in Apollo 13, uh, uh, Jack Schmidt, uh, uh, no, not Jack Schmidt, uh, Jack Schweigert. Schweigert. Yeah, Schweigert uh, had a problem aligning the platform as they powered up because there was so much uh, stuff still uh, outgassing. and Lying uh, out everywhere, right. Yeah, and, uh, and to find the stars uh, were oh, wow. difficult, but he got it done. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. It was an amazing job, actually, uh, what they did. Yeah, the technical achievement, as I'm reading your story, it seems like a microcosm of of Gemini and Apollo in general. It took a heavy toll on families. There was a lot of tragedy, uh, but there was a lot of achievement and triumph. And it it seems kind of like the moon landscape itself, sir, where as you and, and many other astronauts have described it as magnificent desolation was was buzz's words right and and in your book you talk about this combination of of a desolate kind of a wasteland but also a a wonderful pristine kind of beauty and it seems that's a nice uh, a portrait of of what apollo was like a lot of struggle a lot of things to overcome technically of course uh, uh january of 67 you lost three of your comrades uh, in that fire um white and uh Chaffee and, and Grissom, um, and no, nobody was sure the Apollo was going to go forward. Um, it was a strain on families, and, and as, as your own, as we'll, maybe we'll talk about just the difficulties that came from that. But it, it seems also, too, that I was thinking about, as I was reading your book, how that mirrors the gospel as well, that we have this Jesus who is a man of sorrows, who was on the cross forsaken by his father um, for our sin. And it seems like there's this magnificent desolation, if you will, uh, upon the Son of God, but also this wonderful otherworldly beauty in his love and forgiveness toward us. And so the whole mission, everything seems to, to have the signature of, of our creator on it. Uh, he certainly was looking out for you guys. Um, no question. You, about uh, no. it. Um, and everybody, I love... Go everybody, ahead. Everybody didn't realize it at the time, but uh, looking back on it now, there's no question that uh, uh, we had... Uh, uh, godly inspiration uh and made uh made correct decisions and i think that was really the prompting of uh of the lord even in the tension of apollo 11 uh the descent on apollo 11 was very very tense intense oh, yeah. talk about that let's talk about that what was that like sir <laughs> it was uh you know we started out in good shape and then we started having communication problems uh uh, and we had to reorient the spacecraft uh, several times to uh, get the right antennas. And uh, then uh, the crew crew reported the first of the computer overload, uh, 1201 alarm. And uh, I thought that was the end of the descent at that point. But uh, mm. the uh, flight direct, uh, flight controller, uh, 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 gave a go. He said, "We're going that flight." It took oh. him. A, yeah, it took him a. Uh, it wasn't an instant go, but uh, 
he consulted with his back room and Steve Bales uh, and Jack Garman. Uh, they had a chart uh, that if this, if this alarm happens, we're go. If this happens, we're no go. And uh, so he said, we're go. And so I, if I recall, I didn't even wait for uh, Gene Kranz to say, uh, we're going <laughs> that alarm. I just hollered, we're go. Cause I'm sure it was in the cockpit was very tense. Yeah. Right, retro. Go retro. Throttle down. Six plus two five. Give us a reading on the slow boat through program. We're going that flight. We're going that alarm. Roger, we got good alarm. Roger, we go. He's taking in a Delta H now. Roger. 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 How's our margin looking, Bob? It looks okay. We're about okay. four and a half. Roger. Eagle looking great. Here go. Altitude update next. Looks good. Right. The, the tension was ramping up uh, with these uh, alarms. The closer we got, uh, and then at 7,000 feet, the vehicle pitches down so you can see the the moon for the first time. And Neil says, uh, can't land here. There's a, uh, that's not his words, but that was basically the problem. We had him targeted into a, uh, uh, a large, uh, boulder field. I call it it rocks everywhere. So uh, he had to level off and fly uh, across that, maybe several miles, and then pitch up to slow down and then start down like a helicopter. And uh, that used uh, all of our extra fuel. So now we're minimum fuel and Mm. uh, approaching uh, approaching abort fuel. And uh, so the propulsion guy says 60 seconds. And I radioed up 60 seconds, Eagle. And they knew that meant that they had 60 seconds to land Mm. uh, at the present power setting. And then they called 30 seconds, and I called 30 seconds. And the tension was through the roof and mission control. 60 seconds. 60 seconds. Forward. Forward. Okay. Four feet down, two and a half. Picking up the side. Three feet, two and a half down. Thank you, Shadow. Four forward. 
Like 13, 14 seconds later, uh, uh, Buzz transmitted contact. It was a light when you, when the electrical probes below the landing gear hit the moon, it turned on a little light in the cockpit that said contact. Hmm. When that light came on, you, you stopped the engine and you dropped in the last meter or so. So anyway, the light came on and he said, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, contact, engine stop. Contact light. And we knew they were on the ground. A great sigh of relief, of course. We, <laughs> 13 seconds. Uh, now, you know, they were only 20, 30 feet off the, off the ground uh, when I called uh, 30 seconds. And, uh, uh, and uh, I, I doubt that Neil Armstrong would have aborted that mission. He had the final say. Hmm. And uh, when, we, when you say abort, you still had 4% fuel remaining in the descent engine tanks which allowed you time to throttle up to full power, get a positive rate of climb away from the moon. Mm-hmm. And if you climbed out, then it, it would, uh, it would shut down at fuel depletion. So that 4% was available if you were close enough, but we didn't train that way. It was just, you know, you got to that point and we called them abort and they aborted, but, uh, 20 feet off the ground, Neil Armstrong. I, I never talked to him about this, but I don't think he was going to abort. Wow. He was going to land. Now, with it was successful. That's fantastic. And I know you have shared many times publicly uh, the Tranquility the story, where your, your first words to the guys on the moon was, uh, Roger Tranquility, you were so nervous. <laughs> I started, it, it came out, Twang. That's not right. I stopped him. <laughs> corrected myself to tranquility, but it was exciting. And so you can imagine, uh, uh, how we felt in mission control is the, the, the tension just sort of evaporated, like popping on a, a big balloon, you know, and it, uh-huh. it just escapes and yeah, very thankful. So what were your exact first exact words to Neil when he landed after he said, uh, uh, Houston, the Eagle has landed the tranquility base here. What were your, what were your first words to Neil after, right after he said that, uh, the Eagle has landed, what was your first communication tranquility base? No. Um, uh, it, uh, when I heard him say, uh, uh, engine stop, uh, uh, I think I said, uh, we copy on the ground Eagle. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then, then Neil came back, uh, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And that was my, that was the comment, the, the longer comment, Roger Twang Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue, we're breathing again. That's right, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. It was a true statement. Everybody was 
there was a lot of some cheering going on and Okay everybody, T1, stand by for T1. Um, I have a I have a really bad space pun that I thought I'd run by you for approval or disapproval if you'd like. It was about Neil Armstrong, and and my joke was I used to tell this to to my middle schoolers when I taught. How did Neil Armstrong tie his shoes? In astronauts. How about that? Does that work? <laughs> oh, sorry about that. It was just a just a pun. 